Hello Jaffa fans, here for the very first time is our theme tune. Hello and welcome to another edition of Java Cakes for Proust. I'm Gary and everything that follows in the next hour or so is Tilt's fault. How so? Tilt, I am never watching anything that you recommend ever again. You didn't find it interesting? I didn't say I didn't find it interesting. What I said was... Well, there we go. There we're fine. I didn't find it enjoyable. That wasn't the point. It wasn't meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be studied. There was a point, I think it was maybe the second episode, where I thought, I'm actually going to have to tell Till, like, we're just going to have to abandon this project because I'm not sitting through this anymore. But you did it. I did. Yes, I did. And unbelievably, I mean, I don't know what powers of persuasion you've got, but you also managed to quell someone else. Ian Hepburn from, from The Sublime. How are you doing? I'm still in therapy. Till, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about 90s telefantasy production, can't really say hit, virtual murder. Now, a lot of people at the moment are sort of thinking, eh, what's that? When they saw Virtual Murder in the title, they're thinking, was that that weekend with Michael Aspel that was like sort of Cluedo? This is something that basically happened on BBC One in the summer of 1992 that nobody ever saw. I'm astonished that it stayed in the same slot throughout all six episodes, but it did. And what's the, the basic premise of this? The basic premise is that a professor of... Is it psychiatry or psychology? He's a psychology professor. A brain teacher (laughs) and his friend go around solving crimes by being a little bit too pretty and a little bit too pleased with themselves. And it's meant to be cultish. That's the thing. It is a deliberate attempt to make a cult TV series in the mould of The Avengers, Department S, The Saint et al., well, it sounds like it's got all the right ingredients for a smash hit. What I'm also thinking of, perhaps, is that it needs a few recognisable star names. Lots of faces you can spot throughout each episode. Has it got them? Tons of them. Oh, boy. Names you would not believe. In one case, accents you would not believe either. Oh, yes. So we've got a cult show which has got a foundation in successful shows of previous decades. We've got nice... Casting, we've got lots of people that we can recognise, so on. So, surely this sounds like it's a guaranteed smash hit. This can't go wrong, can it? Well, here's the thing. Part of my reason for picking this. I watched it at the time, and my memory was that it was just kind of ho-hum. Generally, I don't want us to pick things that we know are really terrible that we're just going to stick the knife into. So I thought, well, we can just talk about... Yes, this didn't quite work. A little bit like last time, we are talking about Zodiac. And we talk about Zodiac not working, but we're also talking about the little bits that just showed signs of a better show struggling to break out. So we sat down to watch Virtual Murder, and it was much worse than I remembered. But please do stop me if I start just being nasty about the show and doing anything that would spoil somebody's day. See, I've got no such compunction. I'm quite happy to be nasty about this show if it makes it easier for you. Oh, that's okay, you're a guest. <laughs> Hang on, do I have to be not nasty about it? I think I'd probably best leave the room for the next hour in that case. (laughs) Okay, so does it give you alarm bells when you discover that this is going out in the summertime? 
it's not exactly a vote of confidence in a show, is it? If it's going to go out middle of June rather than being your top Saturday night entertainment for October. But maybe that's a way of giving it a quiet launch and it could become a slow burner and develop a cult following and then so on. So who have we got in the main roles then? As John Cornelius, the guy in this guy-girl setup, Nicholas Clay, square-jawed, handsome, voice exactly like that of Colin Baker. I'm glad it's not just me that spotted that. Oh, he was very distracting. It's like the Matalan Colin Baker. It's really, <laughs> really off-putting. He'd been in a 90s Zorro, which is definitely a good thing. Being in a 90s Zorro, definitely a credit, puts him alongside Andrea the Giant, Roddy Piper, and Patsy Rollins. <laughs> <laughs> that was one hell of a triple threat match, let's be honest. I don't want to make it sound like any of the people involved are not good at least front of camera. I don't want to make it sound like I think any of them are not good at their jobs. And he's joined by Samantha Valentine, which is kind of one of those names you'd give to a knockoff Avengers girl, isn't it? Played by Kim Thompson. And she is almost like a distaff Nicholas Clare. She's extremely good looking and posh. And I think this is the first problem. It's not that Nicholas Clare's bad or Kim Thompson's bad, but pick one. Okay, if one of these people is going to be pretty and posh and clever, then the other person has to have some personality kink that balances it out. There's two problems with the relationship with the two of them, and it, I don't think the writing helps it, but they are both playing it very arch. And Clay, I mean, like you said about Colin Baker, it's not just the voice, it's the performance is pitched up. to Because his background was a, he was a stage actor, mainly did Rada, he was mainly a stage actor, He'd done some film and TV, but not a huge amount. And it feels like he's constantly playing for the back of the gallery, the back of the stalls. And he's not pitching it as a TV performance. And because the two of them are on screen all the time, she's pitching to match him. And you end up with these two huge performances at the middle of this show, which really doesn't fit anything else. It's trying to be this really light tone. And in the middle of it, you've got basically the equivalent of Brian Blessed bellowing in your face for 50 minutes. <laughs> The other problem with it is that, and we'll talk a bit more about the episode specifically later on, but the pilot was shown last. And the pilot sets up the relationship that JC and Sam have. You see her breaking into his flat. They talk about they're still quite early on in their relationship because she makes a joke about, you know, isn't it about time I got a key yet? He's not yet. And she doesn't know everything about him. And you see the room that you keep seeing him, which is, it turns out is the penthouse of some hotel where she lives, that you see throughout the rest of the series with no explanation of what it is where he's sitting playing the piano. It's her room. And then you see that for the first time and the explanation of what it is and how moneyed she is. And all of that is dumped at the end of the show. So you've got five episodes where you sort of cannot get a handle on who these two people are and how they know each other and how they're a couple and what the relationship is. And then all of that is explained at the very end of the series. And by that point, you just don't care, to be honest. Frankly, it could have been two people off the street and it wouldn't have made that much difference. Going back to the performances, I think it's an indicator of one of the problems of television fantasy is... As we talked about last week in Zodiac, this idea, this certain mindset that you sometimes came up against, particularly in the 80s and 90s with telefantasy fans, this idea that you have to be clever to get fantasy. You have to be clever to watch the Avengers. The high quality stuff was coming from ITC and that stable, that style. 
that tendency to take it all a little bit too seriously. That's one mindset. On the other hand, you have the actors go, oh, I'm going to do one of these fantasy things. So I'm just, oh, it's just going to have fun and just, oh, chew the scenery. Marvellous. And I think there's that. It's not taking it seriously enough. So and I think that throughout this, the actors are just having a laugh, but having maybe more fun than the audience. And the production is thinking that the audience is really engaged with this smart show. And it's not all that clever. So nobody's meeting in the middle of the point of like, it's Hawkeye, but it's good Hawkeye. Let's just pitch it at the right level. Let's be proud of ourselves, but let's not deceive ourselves that this is threads. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so there was a little bit of an issue with the first As Transmitted episode. Just tell you'd said previously on the show that any time in... I suppose you'd say this probably applies to film as well as television. Anytime you get a situation where somebody is supposed to be in disguise, it never really works. You can never really quite pull it off. And like that Columbo with Patrick McGowan, I mean, I know there's more than one, but obviously, you know the one, I mean, where he's like, you know, whatever. I mean, you know it's him, so obviously, so it's not really having the desired effect. Yeah, but that's fine. That's Columbo, so it's okay you knowing it's him because you know it's him anyway. You know he did the murder, so you know it's well, him actually, in the disguise. Well, I the first 10 minutes, so I didn't know it was him, but yeah, I take your point. The point is, in this particular episode, we've got N. Rytel, and he is playing, well, as it turns out, this up-to-no-good character, i.e. murderer. But there's a little while where we're not supposed to know that he's somebody else in it. And after sort of, maybe sort of 15 minutes or so, you've sort of twigged, something's not right here, something's going on, and... I will speak up for the defence. If you're going to write a script that's dependent on somebody being able to do lots of different voices and accents, Enroy Tell, good choice. Definitely go oh, yeah, for no, it. Absolutely. No problem with that. And also, you definitely can't get away with that trick if it's somebody instantly recognisable. So I think, yes, he works well in the role, but you still sort of twig that something's going on. So when the big reveal happens, it's not really a big reveal. In that first episode, I was looking at this and I was sort of thinking... This has the delivery and the pacing of a CBBC show. And I don't mean a CBBC attempting to do a gritty drama or anything like that. It's just a camp, silly show. And I'm sort of surprised that this is aimed at an adult audience. And a post-Watershed audience at that. I don't want to denigrate regional BBC. But. (laughs) But. Pebble Mill. (laughs) But it is Pebble Mill trying to do a drama. A drama as well that's all shot on VT, which even in 92 would have been pretty much a rarity for drama, wouldn't it? I'm thinking, were they trying to use that to their advantage? Right, let's just move on to a completely different topic. I'm going to work back to virtual murder. I was thinking about Batman the other day, and I was listening to some dance music of a certain age, and I was thinking that it was kind of a shame with those Tim Burton movies. They were really a bit too late, doing that whole gothy thing, the... 89, 92, that's not the time to be doing gothy stuff. And I thought it's, it's kind of a shame that there wasn't a Batman movie in which Gotham was a degroovy global village. And I thought, oh, actually, that could have been the Schumacher movies, but it didn't work. And one of the reasons it didn't work was Schumacher seemed to have, or whoever his cinematographer was, there was this case of, right, so this is going to be kind of unreal and a bit dreamlike. This is not going to be realistic. So what are we going to do? Tell you what, stick a coloured gel in front of the light. Job done. 
And there's a lot of that in Virtual Murder. This is not your normal drama. Because there's a red light being shone on Richard Todd, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was just the glow of Matthew Waterhouse's talent educating him. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking when I saw Richard Todd, I was thinking, well, hey, business is about to pick up because, of course, we'd only just seen Number One Gun recently, so... I had completely the wrong idea about how it was going to turn out. But by episode two, I'm sort of thinking, okay, this isn't really going to improve, is it? I think I actually said that to you at the time, didn't I? I actually thought Richard Todd was kind of going for it. I thought Richard Todd wasn't doing a bad job. If everybody had followed him a little bit, because his overacting was pitched in a nice place. He was a caricature, but he wasn't winking to the camera. He wasn't just like, oh, overacting here, hey? It's all it's all a big party. He was playing it straight but silly at the same time. Everybody could have gotten to the zone he was in. Things would have been so different. To be fair to the show, and God knows that's probably not a phrase I'm going to use very often over the course of this podcast, but to be fair to Virtual Murder, there are a few performances in it that are actually quite likeable. Richard Todd is very good. Tony Robinson, in his episode, is surprisingly likeable, given what the part requires him to be and to do. He's actually quite a fun and light and gets the tone of what the episode should be. Far sells it far better than anyone else does in that show. And Bernard Horsfall, in his couple of scenes in Torch for Silverado, is phenomenal. But, you know, it's Bernard Horsfall, you'd expect him to be brilliant. But he is just on a different plane to everybody else. The scene of him and Nicholas Clay together, you're sitting there with it. I, I was like clenched fists in my mouth at this sort of difference in quality of performance. He is having fun but selling the character, whereas pseudo Colin Baker is barking at him. And it's so jarring. But the, there are little bits in it that are really fine. It's just the, none of it gels with the rest of the show. I want to flip back actually to episode one. And this being the first episode, the solution at the end is like, who has done this thing? It's somebody who's got an animus against me that we've never heard of before. Yeah, he's it's, it's arch-villain. It's his joker, but, you know, oh, by the way, we're only going to tell you two minutes before the end. Oh, right, thanks. You know, it would be, it would be equivalent of Moriarty appearing in the final page of Reichenbach and just going, ah, it's me! Who the hell are you? That's what they're pitching it as well. There's this kind of build-up of he is Cornelius, he's arch-nemesis, this man that he's put away before, he's out for a bit. You don't, there's no sell of that at all. And even yeah, in... We, we find out his motivation simply when Cornelius remembers it. It's not seeded. With some truly terrible flashback wigs as well. Oh, yeah. That's actually one thing we should, should definitely point out as well. The talking about the regional production, I'm trying not to insult Pebble Mill, but... The production standards and the, the design work on Virtual Murder from minute one is bog-awful. It's I don't know if they had budgetary issues or if it's because they did a Neverwhere and were lighting for film and shot on VT or whatever, but everything looks... Because this is all VT, isn't it? As we keep on mentioning Pebble Mill, I'm sort of thinking now, could they not have had a rule where if Pebble Mill was going to make a drama, then it actually has to be the Pebble Mill presenters who appear in it. All of them. So episode one, the villain is Alan Titchmarsh. Episode two, Ross <laughs> Ken. And this nearly comes true because Judy Spires appears, doesn't she? Yeah. She does, yeah. Well, so there you go. It's close. 
I don't want to run down VT as a medium for drama because it works for some things. It's intimate and it's immediate. But if you're going for something unreal, if you're going for something unreal and kind of mainstream, it's not a good choice here. Maybe they should have waited for a few years. It seems to have been primarily so they could do wacky transitions, top of the pop style transitions between <laughs> scenes. That seems to be the only reason it's on VT, so they can make use of like, Quantel or whatever they were using to do it those makes wipes. makes the day-to-day look subtle. It really does. <laughs> there's a couple, there's, there's one in the pilot slash last episode where you sort of watch it and go, God, kids TV would look at that and go, Pfft. There's one of the ones in the coffin episode, the, the vampire episode where they do a transition out of a coffin and it's just like 50 pence local regional telly on the... Freeview multiplex where they stick it in the arse end of nowhere and give it away for top slice and the license fee. That kind of channel, like that's Manchester. It's <laughs> <laughs> terrible to say, but by God, it really is that grim. That's the kind of, oh, look, we've got a button that does a fantastic page wipe. Let's use that. And they've built a drama around this. I've got to check now. Does that's Manchester? They don't have like anything like that, do they? They can't afford it, to be honest. They've only got two cameras. <laughs> but I think, I'm sure we mentioned before about. How I accidentally, because I, I managed to tune into six TV Southampton. This is like 10 years ago. Oh, and, are we going there? Well, I think we should. <laughs> well, if we're going into the realms of terrible British telly fantasy, the six TV is responsible for one of the worst of all time. The Adventures of Stephen Brown. I don't know anything about this, right? But I'm told that there's some low-power Southampton TV stations. So I eventually I get a screwdriver out and I start fiddling around with the RF dial and eventually I managed to find reception of something that I don't recognise and I think at the time I think they were showing one of those is it JML or JMB whatever it is you know one of those infomercials right so I'll leave the room for a few minutes I come back and it's like some bloke who looks like he's doing a copycats impersonation of Tom Baker and he's running around in a boiler room or something like this and I'm thinking what's happened? <laughs> Has somebody changed the channel? I really hope they haven't. I hope this is actually a drama on that local TV station that just tuned in, and it was. That's exactly what local TV stations should be doing. I don't care if the production values are not really happening. And You go, guys. That's fine. DIY. Reach beyond your grasp. Virtual Murder has no such excuses. <laughs> I know that my memory plays tricks, but my memory is that there was nobody else in that scene. That was just him running around talking very possibly that would be the adventures of stephen brown which is available to find on youtube if you look for it we had a long-running joke about it on the thumbcast and it is you i'm trying to be very charitable because it's basically a fan film it's a bunch of student filmmakers who got a slot on 6tv in southampton and in oxford as well strangely and we're producing this but it's pretty grim it also got a massive offcom warning because the pre-watershed, it showed someone being stabbed pretty heavily in blood and everything. It's like, um, how did enough of this get through? Like a proper sort of Nightmare on Elm Street style slasher moment. I, think they no, probably... I find it fascinating. I'm glad it exists because it's not something you would have imagined exists. And it's the kind of thing that makes me have dark moments about this stupid podcast where we watch other people creating things and go, hmm. Not good enough, really, is it? Oh, God, like, that's such hard work. But we're nice about it. Yeah, but what's your podcast about? It's like, it's what all podcasts are about. It's about popular culture. It's about me watching television, expecting people to give me credit for being a really good television watcher. Yeah, put that on my CV. That's a transferable skill. (laughs) Wow! You ever feel that Mystery Science Theatre actually did genuine, long-lasting damage 
to our species, as good as MST3K was. But the thing about <laughs> MST3K was for everything they destroyed, they created something in its place. They did the host segment that had far worse production values than anything they were mocking. Everything they tore down, it's like, okay, we've done that. Now let's do something cheap and silly ourselves to put something back. Let's not leave a cultural vacuum. And just now you get people deliberately pretending things are worse than they really are. Time Chasers is actually a pretty good movie. So anyway, episode two to Helen Beck contains a little clue of something that could have saved it. There's a character called Helen Bark, played by Natasha Pine. She's incidental to the plot. Uh, but she wears, it's not quite a poncho, she wears sort of one of those kind of overcoat cape things. She has this big silly hat. She has these dangly earrings. She's got short grey hair. Like, if she had been paired with Nicholas Clay, then, <laughs> no, I'm serious. The, the show would have worked on a different level because it's somebody who's a little bit more down to earth and yet also a little bit more eccentric. Somebody with an actual recognisable personality. Somebody who can't really play the, excuse me, I'm a little bit too posh and gorgeous to be doing this, actually, when coming up against bureaucracy or resistance from the police. If Nicholas Clay is blustering around with his, oh, I'm just incredibly clever and I'm having ideas, that kind of fake Doctor Who-ish stuff, which actually you get a lot in real Doctor Who, and she's there kind of despairing a little bit, going, yes, yeah, okay, calm down. Somebody who actually looks like they've done washing up a lot. <laughs> so, yeah, th there's a real world down here. If you want to come back down, and then I think it would have been a completely different chemistry. Or if Kim Thompson had been put with actual Colin Baker, and Colin Baker was a little bit more... I'm trying not to turn Cornelius into the Sixth Doctor. Make him shabbier. Make him somebody who doesn't take care of himself quite as well. Make him somebody who's got cottage cheese, except it's actually a, meant to be a bottle of milk. See, that's the weird thing, because they do, again, in the pilot, and because it's shown at the end, it throws this out, but he, in the pilot, he's seen as this scatty, cheap, not very well-organised or sort of caring about anything other than his studies and his work, and... You know, he buys cheap whiskey and she berates him for it, you know, and, and cheap wine and stuff. And she's going, I'll set you up with my supplier and proper whiskey. But he is more shabby than that. And he stays in rooms in the, the university rather than at her penthouse. And if he'd stuck with that, and if that had been at the start of the show and, you saw, and it almost became her gentrifying him, there might have been a degree of a character arc to it. But because they leap in effectively with episode two and all that's just been done and dusted, by the time we get to those moments... They don't make any sort of thematic or sequential sense. Everything's kind of his character entirely reverses for one episode at the end of the series, and it kind of takes away from that. From what you you could have had of him starting out as a little shabby and absent-minded and a professor, and becoming just a slick and unlikable. Okay, recasting suggestion: Doctor Cornelius, Don Henderson. Hey Gary, here. You ever seen Bowman? Yes. Watch Bullman. Recasting suggestion. Instead of virtual murder, let's just watch Bullman. <laughs> <laughs> See, I actually have a casting before. I've come prepared for this, knowing this would, this would happen. I have a casting system. Because something struck me when I was re-watching it. The central premise of virtual murder is a university psychology professor in a provincial English town with the help of his red-headed lover come assistant helping the police solve unusual crimes. It's basically Cracker. 
It is the core story of Cracker. It's just done in a really cack-handed way and look like the Avengers. So replace Nicholas Clay with Robbie Coltrane. You have a very different dynamic then because you can have the really posh Kim Thompson being really posh and you've got gruff Glaswegian fat bloke playing off of that and he's got a nice light and we know Coltrane can do comedy really well. He can do, he would probably sell the comedic moments a lot more than, than Clay does. You'd have a very different dynamic around the university and the relationship with Sam, the relationship with Cadogan. I think it would, I actually genuinely think it would have made a far better show because you'd have a very different tone to the performance in terms of the, the wit and the, the comedy behind it. I can see this, yes. Yeah, I can, I can sort of picture this. It does ruin Cracker, though. There's another word that leapt out at me in that description, which I think is a problem. Lover. Sex is a problem. It's like somebody said, well, people liked the Avengers because of the will they want their thing, but hey, it's the 90s, so obviously they do. All the time, there's this Mary Sueishness about the whole thing. And then at the end, it's like, and then they had terrific sex. <laughs> it kind of feels like that whole bit is informed by someone who watched an episode of Heart to Heart. I just thought that's what these kind of dramas should be. Two Which people is sh- itself ripped off Paul Temple. Exactly, but it's two people just shagging repeatedly for <laughs> 45 minutes and occasionally solving murders. But it's another thing that just makes them smug and self-contained and just as much as a cliche as will they want they would be, it would actually help if they were never on the same page about their feelings about each other. It would make them more likeable. I was very surprised. I was having a look at... Um, the people behind the scenes, and they're all, like, born in the 30s. My initial thought, when when I did this, I thought, oh, this will be a chance to give a kicking to Generation X geeks, because that's what <laughs> I like to do. But no, I, I thought this looked like the kind of thing that had been made by people who'd grown up watching fantasy shows and only knew about fantasy shows. They'd learned to act or they'd learned to write by only watching fantasy shows. So I was quite surprised that it was the work of people who... We're old enough to know better. Although in, in the case of one of the creators, he, his background was working on some genre stuff. Brian Degas had written Barbarella, didn't he? Or co-wrote Barbarella. Yes, film. and uh, Diabolic. Yeah. And he'd also been working on, on some of the ITC stuff in the 60s. So that was his background. I kind of get the feeling he was brought in to do that. The way they brought in Brian Clements to do Bugs because they thought, well, this could be the new professionals. They brought in him to do this because they knew he could write that kind of being like the new professional (laughs) (laughs) yes but you know he he could write stuff like the saint and so on he'd done all those kind of shows so they could get him to do that kind of plotting of well you say plotting that kind of formatting for a story well philip martin philip martin writes the first episode that aired the one about the paintings all being melted and you know philip martin's background is as well as having written for stuff like doctor who is doing incredibly meta stuff like gangsters you know, with the final episode, which almost collapses under its own weight of being a meta-textual exploration of a writer's pain and crafting drama. But he is used to writing sort of offbeat fantasy stuff. He'd been doing it for a long time at that point. So he, of all people, you'd think would be the one who could do it well. And that episode's a mess. And I think that's one of the problems with Virtual Murder is that it feels at times like they're writing with the presumption that everyone will watch this or will have seen The Avengers or will have seen The Prisoner or will have seen that kind of sort of wacky show. But they haven't. You know, The Avengers hadn't been on British TV for God knows how long at that point. The Prisoner had only just been repeated as part of one episode of TV Heaven 
I think, very close to the start of Virtual Murder. So that kind of 60s sensibility of slightly quirky TV show wasn't there. There wasn't the precedent. And the import stuff that had been coming in was pap like Airwolf. There wasn't a lot of really good shows coming across the Atlantic. It's so close to finding its moment, though, because there was that little point when old TV was cool in a slightly dance-inspired way. And I mean, thinking like Time Warp Television era of Bravo, it felt like you were actually part of a reasonably cool, slightly acid movement to be watching this stuff. But I don't know enough to actually point a finger at why this film, but somebody somewhere in the chain, either everybody or one person who took one decision, they're just not hip enough <laughs> to pull this show off. And I don't like being all about the cool kids sneering at the uncool kids. But there's something in there. It's like, no, you really need to go to a club and have a look at what it looks like and then take that back to your television drama. There's the famous quote about Virtual Murder, which is is cited on the Wikipedia, but it was Lynn Truss, when she was reviewing television for the Times in 92, described um, Virtual Murder as something like, I think it was The Avengers written by someone who'd only ever heard about it once but never watched it. it Something like that. And that's the perfect description. It kind of feels like a show where... They've been given, we want you to do a quirky detective series that's to be a little bit hip and a little bit trendy and it's going to be about VR and going to be sexy and and it should be like the Avengers. And it's like, well, okay, how do you fit all of that into 45 minutes in Birmingham? And I don't, I don't mean that disparaging about Birmingham, but it's just, it's obviously been done in a, this is fulfilling a regional TV brief. It's fulfilling a quota for getting something out into the, the nations and regions. And it's just not working. It feels like a setup that's not, geared to produce that kind of television and what they produce doesn't work on any level the production design the quality of it the casting the writing the direction everything about it fails and maybe it's because it was done at pebble mill it was away from tvc it was away from london and it was away from the sort of the drama head's eyes that it kind of fell under the radar and it got it might be as, as gary said at the start of this it's aired in the summer because they kind of got it and watched it and went this is what we've ended up with. It's made in Birmingham by people who want to be in London. I think it was made by somebody in Birmingham who was excited by Birmingham, excited by the possibilities of the Midlands, because he doesn't really boast about being from the Midlands. But then again, maybe you'd have to show people who weren't white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that sounded a bit tumbler off me. And, and again, referencing Philip Martin, Philip Martin obviously wrote Gangsters, and the first series of Gangsters is about the sort of ethnic mix in Birmingham in, in the West Midlands. Colin McFarlane's in one episode. There's the lad that plays Cadogan's assistant, whose name escapes me. Jude Akawukudi, I think it is. My pronunciation is going to be terrible, I apologise. And I think that is it. There's not a lot of ethnic actors. There's one episode that, the fact that John Pertwee won, that does for the Chinese what the Green Death did for the Welsh. And we should get to that one pretty soon, because that's an astonishingly tone-deaf piece of television on every level. It's not quite as bad as that new Avengers episode, is it? I think it's possibly worse. (laughs) It's genuinely offensive on so many planes. Yeah, so let's get on to episode four. Let's skip episode three, except to say that maggots, you actually have to be dead for quite a while. That plot wouldn't work. I just want to point one thing out about episode three. Episode three is the one where we watched it till we watched it at the same time, and then I said to you at the end of it, "What happened there?" <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't. 
really know what had happened at any point. So who were the victims? It sounded like it was like a couple of people who were in the newspaper or something that we didn't actually see. That is actually one problem that I think all the episodes have, Gary, is that a lot of the time Virtual Murder feels like it's actually missing the third act. There's always a resolution problem and every episode the resolution doesn't pay off. The fourth episode, A Torch for Silverado, that we're about to talk about, is catastrophically bad in that respect, but all of them have an issue where the final resolution either doesn't make sense or it's actually not even dealt with. Things just happen and then the story stops. Was this series the subject of a competition on Blue Peter? <laughs> where they've, they've written the first half an hour and then they say, right, come on then, budding writers, you give us the last 20 minutes and, and there you go. But they never actually got a script editor in to weave the, the two bits together and so off they went. It's actually series three of What's Your Story with Sylvester McCoy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, at least episode four was hypnotic in a way. There was one bit that worked. It was like, right, if you're going to try and make something that's quirky and visually kinky, there's an idea. There's the burned out club. Bomb's gone off. And there's a little girl dressed as a fairy just playing in the wreckage. Right, okay, there's a reason for her being there. That's fine. She's there with her mother or she lives nearby. Dressed as a fairy because she's about six years old. That's fine. There's just a place for her to play. There's just a place where there's a lot of space. So she's just messing around. And yet, put a girl dressed as a fairy in a burned out place. It's a really arresting visual. And if you just start thinking in terms like that, it's like, yeah, you could bring up all kinds of stuff. They do almost, in To Hell and Back, have a similar moment with when Cornelius is given the note by the bloke dressed as a bunny for absolutely no reason. And it's barely remarked on. It's kind of just like a look. It almost feels like the terrible Avengers movie where they all dress as teddy bears for no reason. But it all—it kind of works in Virtual Murder in that scene. It's like someone's been asked to deliver a message who just happens to be dressed as a bunny. And it's sort of lovely incongruity to the moment that doesn't play with the rest of the episode, oddly enough. I've forgotten. I'm just I'm looking at my notes and I can't remember what the hell any of this stuff refers to. <laughs> Just, just say John Pertwee. That, that's, yeah. that's yes, jo- John Pertwee as a Mexican pimp. Now that's how he should have been introduced at the beginning. And John Pertwee as a Mexican pimp. You see, I'm getting confused by my own notes because I'm thinking, surely the plot is not just John Pertwee was a pimp and then was he arrested and he's bitter about it and now he's blowing up strip joints and brothels. To mark the anniversary of him being arrested. That's supposedly the catalyst. And that's it. Yeah. And for, they don't really explain why, for the, since he's, you know, he was arrested for prostitution and running a brothel, why he is now working as a chef in an Italian restaurant. They never really explain that. It's other than just it, he's there. And his handwriting on the menus, because he's also leaving Riddler-type clues. The problem with the episode, with like one of many, admittedly, but the biggest problem with the episode is that it's utterly disconnected from... Cornelius and Samantha. They only really interact with the proper plot and the resolution after, and spoilers ahead, after John Pertwee's character's dead. And he dies in hospital of a heart attack. It's not like he's stopped by... It's what I meant by the sort of third act falling apart all the time. He's not stopped by the actions of the heroes. He's stopped because he's got a heart condition. So again, I'm actually not sure. I don't know if you'd notice it better than this tilt in mind, but they don't say what's wrong with him, just that he's got two weeks to live. 
Yes. He's he's got some non-specific condition that causes him to clutch his chest, but occasionally it's McGregor fall over. syndrome. <laughs> A lot of people suffered from it in the 90s. I, can, I think it's transmitted, actually, through uh, coloured gels. That uh, Gary, I, I don't know if I need to explain that one to you. Yeah, you, you, you can tell me off here. Okay. To... <laughs> Sorry. I was watching that last night as well. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh. Anyway, sorry, let me I'm just drink and so pause myself. The last club that they have to save from being blown up. Well, hey, oh, you know what? We were complaining about failing to use the ethnic diversity of the Midlands. And this really does fail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there's tone deaf and then there's blatant, outright, undisguised comedy racism masquerading as characterization. This is as close as they could get to just getting someone to stick on some yellow face and a Fu Manchu moustache that just happened to be a white actor. If they could have done that, I wouldn't have been shocked to have seen one in the cast. It almost feels like a tribute, doesn't it? A tribute to those times in the Avengers and stuff like that. Like that Avengers episode where there's the Sherpa who is just a white guy who's just pulling a face. They haven't even given him the makeup. So you have uh, the bouncer at the club who speaks in that version of English where he just drops prepositions and he's also incredibly violent and the more when a bank show hadn't gone out at this point if it had I would feel that somebody had used that as research (laughs) (laughs) for the female characters in the club there is a moment in it where the the bouncer makes a comment about having a Chinese takeaway taking the girls away as a Chinese and I was like in 1992 maybe in an outtake from Mind Your Language, I could understand that sneaking in on the VT tapes at Christmas. But on a 1992 BBC One Friday night 9.30 drama, for that to get in is astonishing. There is also a slightly callous attitude towards the customers in the place as well, because if I remember correctly, they don't actually evacuate the place, do they? No, that's, yeah, they don't alert anybody. It's like they just assume that they'll defuse the bomb before everybody gets killed. It's just as well Bernard Horsfall has a mobile reception out in the Dordogne or wherever it is he uh, is at. Otherwise, they would have all have died. And it is quite telling, actually, of, of all the things in that episode. I've mentioned Horsfall before, but Bernard Horsfall doing a VO track of someone on a phone is still a better actor than Nicholas Clay. Or a better performance. Sorry, I, I can't say he's a better actor because Clay's very well, or was, sadly, no longer, no longer with us, but was a very well-established stage actor. But he, in that scene, he's been outacted by a man who's doing a voiceover on a phone, who's literally phoning in his performance. Now, speaking of Moena Banks, and it's completely gone. There was an ITV pilot of a parody of ITC shows. William Gaunt was in it, Moena Banks was in it. The Preventers! Oh, the that, pre- that's yes. what this felt like when we're talking about the racial politics of this particular episode. <laughs> it felt like it's like that show never went to series, but if it had, that's it. Right, so right, what cliches are we going to do? Well, obviously we have to do an episode dealing with all that stuff. That's the thing. If this had been done as a spoof, it could have worked. If everyone was playing it really super big and the whole thing was being done as a parody of adventure serials. It might just have worked. So it was a horrible 90s ironic type thing. But it would have just about 
got away with some of the stuff it got away with. But it's not. It's played not completely straight, but it's played straight enough that it's not meant to be a parody. It's meant to be an updating of the format. The fifth episode of Dream of Dracula absolutely is an Avengers script with the edges sawn off. I mean, it's, it couldn't be more blatant if they tried. I would be shocked if that the writer didn't have that sitting in a drawer for 30 years and sort of just <laughs> dug it out and went, oh, hang on, I, oh, BBC are commissioning something that's a bit quirky. I've got an idea. I've got this hanging about. Would that fill a gap for you? I've been re-watching The Avengers. I only have one episode left. And I find that the colour rigs really suffer from the formula hitting you in the first week after week. So somebody's been killed, somebody's gone missing. Right, let's go and see the eccentric expert. Hello, eccentric expert. Yes, I'm very strange and I like things and here I have things and I dress up as a thing and my name is Mr. Thing. And then he gets murdered because he knew something. The thing is, the fifth episode, I think, is the nearest it gets to being the kind of show it wants to be. Or maybe I'm just dazzled by the cast. <laughs> Let me read out some of the names in this cast list. <laughs> I think, didn't I look away so I wouldn't be getting any spoilers at the outset because I didn't want to know who was in it and, and basically everybody's in this, isn't it? Ronald Fraser, Sam Kelly, Jill Gascoigne, Peggy Mount, Tessa Wyatt, Julian Clary. This visits three eccentrics. Well, we're kind of counting Jill Gascoigne. She's a dentist and she has a big model of some teeth. She's not quite the full-blown Avengers eccentric. But it's like they visit a distinctive professional. But then they visit Julian Clary, who's an undertaker, dressed in white. And then they visit Ronald Fraser, who's a bat expert. So they've really loaded it with all the tropes. I think if this had been episode one, it would have piqued people's interest a bit more. It looks a little bit more like it's going in the right direction. Of course, Peggy Mount, yeah. This is the one where they visit eccentric after eccentric after eccentric because the resolution's so poor. There isn't really a complicated motive to work out. It's just like, right, here are the characters. One of them did it. There's been vampire attacks. Why did they do it? Because they think they're a vampire. Oh. It's the one of the few times as well where Cornelius is actually a psychologist. It's kind of like they've just picked a... Oh, well, he, he, he needs something that would allow him to investigate crimes that the police would come to him. Psychology will do. That one is one of the few times they actually use him. And actually, to be fair, in the sixth episode, which obviously is the first episode, he does like criminal profiling of all the potential suspects. But it is the first time you sort of really see him in the show sitting down and trying to analyse something in, in a clinical way. You're right, I think if that had aired first, if that had been the first bit and you kind of establish his credentials he might have been a bit more believable as a as a figure, as an antagonist, why the cops keep going back to him for a start. But it does have this really clunky bit. Ronald Fraser's character is called Van Helsing. And so there's a line, Van Helsing, wasn't that the vampire hunter in the Dracula novel? It's that thing, you see, as you say, it feels like it's written under this assumption that people will already be engaged with that, but at the same time, it's written with this assumption that they won't be literate for real literature. I better put that in because, you know, the plebs will get confused. Ian, you're the expert on episode six because I can't actually remember anything about it. The original plan for Virtual Murder was that it was going to be called Nimrod and the first <laughs> episode was called Virtual Murder because this is the pilot, this is this, which ended up being the sixth episode and is about virtual reality. And it's about that virtual reality that you only get in television of the early 1990s that bears no resemblance to real virtual reality. <laughs> Although you do actually see... 
JC and Sam use proper virtuality sets and play a proper virtuality game. It's such a lovely moment because then you have the terrible, we burn this laser into your eyes so we can project it onto your retina so it's properly immersive. But what it really is is a really badly pixelated, gaudy version of the Games Master opening titles. <laughs> I swear I kept waiting for Dominic Diamond to pop up. He looks exactly <laughs> like the second series of Games Master. So there's kind of this weird, someone doesn't understand how VR works and has written this. And because it's the pilot, about 50% of the episode is spent setting up the character relationships. So Cornelius and Sam, Cornelius and Alan David, who we've not mentioned at all actually doing this, who is one of the few bright sparks in this show. And also it presents the first meeting of Cornelius and Cadogan. Which is a slight problem because Cadogan's been using them for the previous five episodes as his liaison. And the shame of it is that Yardley, who doesn't get anything near like the, the right amount of screen time in the show anyway, but he has the tone completely right. Given he not long come off of Howard's way at that point as well. And it's a complete flip from Ken Masters. But it's quite frothy and funny and... He's bumbling, but he's still not completely incompetent. He's still a decent cop. It's just he's not as sharp and slick as the gruesome twosome. I really like him in it. I actually really enjoy watching Cadogan's bits, and especially with the, when he turns out to be the closet train buff and that helps solve the crime in the To Helen Back episode. He, under, he knows about model railways, which fits with his character. And likewise, Alan David's character is this brilliant, blustering, cantankerous old sod who turns out to be a genius and graphology and that helps solve the graphology issue in the John Pertwee episode so it's kind of they give those guys a couple of hero moments where they really are great and if we could ditch the rest of the show I'd be quite happy the biggest problem with the Dreams and Magic episode is it ends up being called Dreams and Magic I mean what the hell does that even mean the performances of everyone else they haven't got a big name in it but you've got lots of actors you'd recognise in 92, the, probably the most prominent one being Sean Pertwee, who disappears halfway through the episode for no apparent reason, and is also doing an accent that actually makes his dad's look <laughs> convincing. Spin a globe, stick a pin in it, and there's a reasonable chance you'd hit where the accent's meant to be from at any given moment. Yeah, one thing I haven't mentioned really is the number of faces throughout the series. Like, so episode one, we've got Brian Guaspari and Helen Lederer, Bernard Breslau. Episode two, we, uh, we mentioned Richard Todd, Anita Carey. I thought they'd do more with her and they didn't. Maybe they're just not as big a fans of didn't know you she's cared. She's just there and then she's not. Episode three, because Tony Robinson and Howell Bennett, Debbie Arnold, Dora Bryan and Judy Spires. Uh, John Bluthall in Torture Silverado, he got, kind of got distracted by uh, John Pertwee and Bernard Horsfall. It's very anticlimactic, the cast list of the sixth episode. Well, this is the problem with it. It was clearly shot as a pilot because everything looks different, the hair's different, the sets are different. It would be like taking the first episode of a season of Taggart where you introduce the new detective and then airing that last and wondering who the hell this bloke is hanging about Mary Hill for the last five episodes. Oh, that's who he is. They there there tell are us, often you know? men hanging around Mini Hill, there aren't there, so it's... there. There is, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a very weak pilot, but it's one of those things where it's symptomatic of the show, where the, so much of what you need to make sense of the relationships and the characters is in that, and that's an afterthought. 
in terms of scheduling. They obviously wanted to start with a, a strong episode, although they don't really. But by not starting with the, the actual episode that it sets everything up, you end up with a show where nothing makes sense for a long time. And by the time you get to the point where it is all explained, it completely overwrites everything else that's gone in the previous five episodes. And it just feels like it's really slapdash and like, we'll just stick six episodes out. It doesn't matter what order they're in, what it genuinely does. Do you think they were sort of thinking, well, look, obviously there's going to be a second series. <laughs> There's going to be half a dozen series of this at least, so does it really matter when we introduce who the hell they are? The thing with this is, we've, we've said on the show, and you said at the start, Gary, that nobody watched this, and it was out in the summer of 92, but it started with about six and a half million viewing figures, and it tailed off, and it was getting, it's still getting five for the final couple of episodes. Now, if you offered someone five million for a Friday night quirky new crime drama in the summer, now... They'd chop your oh, hand yeah. off. They'd, they'd be saying, oh, blimey, look at this. We can do things as good as Netflix after all. Way. And Mark Lawson would be raving about it. And, and it's true enough. And wasn't, wasn't this around about the time when, wasn't that fella ex-BBC and then he was ITV and he made some comment about how if a drama gets less than 10 million viewers, it's a failure? Sorry, I was too busy looking up if there were any productions called Murder.com. I was trying to think what this show would have been called if it started a few years later. Well, well, I was actually going to suggest because I've got my, I have a list of all the other shows that were made during in the nineteen nineties. Talking about sort of the state of tele fantasy, of course, in nineteen ninety eight, you had Linda Laplante's Killer Net, <laughs> which I suspect would have been virtual murder if it was made five years later. Was there also a Killer AOL? <laughs> As part of the research for this and looking at sort of the wider tele fantasy of the nineties, I actually watched uh, a couple of episodes of Invasion Earth. A rewatch division Earth because we had a long running hatred of it on, on a podcast I used to do a while ago. But at the end of that, it had the URL for the Invasion Earth webpage on Beeb.com, um, which was very heavily promoted at the end of the episode. It was incredible. I'd forgotten Beeb.com even existed. So, yes, the 90s television fantasy crisis. Is virtual murder indicative of it, or did it even start it all? <laughs> Was it really just a case of people sitting around waiting for Doctor Who to come back and complaining at everything that wasn't Doctor Who? There was some terrible stuff just papped out for no reason. But there was some actually stuff really good that I'd forgotten about. In 92, for instance, which is the year Virtual Murder aired, you have Moon and Sun at the start of the year, which is a slog. It takes all the worst aspects of Triangle and applies them to the format of Lovejoy, but with psychics. Well, we did Zodiac last time, <laughs> which had this whole thing of, well, we know he didn't do it because he's a Pisces. And Moon and Sun does exactly the same, but with a computer to work out the chart. Poor John Mishy. I'm sure he doesn't mention this in his CV these days. And Millicent Martin, who didn't work in the UK again, she cleared off to America to go and be in The Young and the Restless or Friends of Our Lives, or whatever they're called, one of those was American shows. She's mother in Frasier. She was, yeah. But she did, I think this was pretty much her last major TV role in the UK before she just disappeared and refused to come work here. I can't think why after watching Moon and Sun. In 92, you've got Moon and Sun, you've got Virtual Murder, you've got the cloning of Joanna May on ITV, which was sort of sci fi and name only. You've got the remake of The Tomorrow People on ITV, which was actually genuinely quite good. They kind of did it well. Roger Price was involved and then the guys that did spats took over hey. <laughs> and and it's actually really good i will i will be fair to them they did a great job on it it's been I such really a like long time it. since we talked about 
Spats. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate a Spats reference. The other big thing you had in 92, and I think this is possibly the big problem with the decade of all the things that happened that year, is 92 you have Ghostwatch. And Ghostwatch really kind of... It, it Because of the brouhaha around it, you didn't see a lot of genre TV coming out in the immediate wake of it. It was no kind of, oh, well, let's do... I mean, 93, there's virtually nothing. Good Night Sweetheart's pretty much the only thing that appears. And it's kind of like the decks get cleared because no one wants to do anything that might be seen as cult or weird or spooky or anything like that. But at the same time, you've got, over the next sort of year, Babylon 5 starting and the X-Files starting and all the American imports starting to come in at Sequest that have money behind them. They look good and they're not the schlock of Street Hawk or, you know, Buck Rogers. They're all a bit more glossy and shiny and look Hollywood. And that kind of seems to be the point when British productions really tail off. You don't get a lot being made in the wake of those shows coming over here. So Ghostwatch kind of feels like a stop. And then after that, folk took a break. Oh, we don't want to do anything else on the wake of this because all the brouhaha it caused. At which point the Americans come and park their tanks on the lawn and nobody does anything for a couple of years. And then we end up with Space Precinct. So it all falls apart after that. What year was Crime Traveller? Crime Traveller was the year of hell. It was 1997. You had Crime Traveller and The Vanishing Man. In 97, which was Neil Morrissey doing The Invisible Man. I don't even remember that. It was Anthony Horowitz that was responsible for it. If you can imagine basically him playing Rocky from Boone as The Invisible Man. <laughs> helping fight crime for Elizabeth Carling out of Goodnight Sweetheart. That's basically the plot of Vanishing Man. This sounds amazing. I've got to see this. <laughs> but you also, opposite that, this that you have the sort of natural successor to Virtual Murder, which is Jonathan Creek. That started in 97. And it's amazing to look at Virtual Murder and Jonathan Creek, and there's a lot of similarities in the format. It's just the tone, the production, the cast, the acting, the writing. Everything else is different. But the format isn't a million miles away from what they did with Virtual Murder. It took them four years to kind of clear the dirt out of the way and let them have another run at it. I watched Crime Traveller. Why are you whispering that? <laughs> the weird thing is, is that I'm surprised that The Hate It Gets, not because it was too good for The Hate It Gets. I'm surprised anybody feels that strongly about it in any way. It's like, and Crime Traveller, that was a show. That's about as much as I could say about it. Are there people who really like Crime Traveller? I know of one. Genuinely, what a friend of mine who was delighted that it came out on DVD and pre-ordered it. Nicholas Hanlon, if you're listening, I mean you. you there's no escape. <laughs> I remembered Virtual Murder being ho-hum. So Jonathan Creek is the inheritor of Virtual Murder in another way, and I suppose Crime Traveller is probably the inheritor of the mantle in another way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 well, yeah, I suppose it is, yeah. Because they're trying to do the sexy detective relationship with him out of EastEnders and her out of Red Dwarf, Chloe Annette. And also, Crime Traveler is responsible for. I don't know if you're uh, SFX magazine. Famously, did, they had a segment in the thing in, in the magazine called <laughs> "Isn't It Time You Gave X Another Chance?" Where it was insert a much maligned film, television, whatever in there. Facing page on the the right as you open the mag, it says, "Isn't it time you gave Crime Traveler another chance?" And you turn the page, and there's a double page spread that just said, "No." <laughs> Full stop. Did they ever do? Is it time you gave Virtual Murder another chance? <laughs> 
They didn't. I actually managed to get a mini feature about Virtual Murder in my oh. time at SFX. So it was a thing about the reviewing the state of British telefantasy in 2001, which it didn't get much better uh, for the next few years either. But I managed to get references into Virtual Murder at that point because I hadn't seen it in years at that point and I thought it might be quite good. Isn't it time you gave Ken Viganal a chance? <laughs> But Virtual Murder didn't work out, television fantasy recovered, and so did detective fiction. And now we have Houdini and Doyle. And everything is... Oh, God, Ian's died. Are you hitting yourself with that black pudding? (laughs) Please just don't hold back, because I've never really talked to anybody else about it. But you share the same problem I have with all portrayals I've ever seen of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And I gather Houdini and Doyle just takes that right into orbit. There is an episode of Houdini and Doyle that aired a couple of weeks ago. I think it's the seventh episode, which is about Bedlam and Doyle being committed to a mental asylum, specifically Bethlehem Hospital, which is genuinely the single worst piece of television I have ever watched. And I don't say that lightly. There is... Literally nothing about it that is in any way good except for one thing, which is Ewan Bremner appearing in it. And he's only in it for a couple of scenes. Everything about it is awful. Stephen Mangan's performance is jaw-droppingly bad to the point when if someone had told me that he was ill and had been committed in real life, it would have explained the level of performance he gives. It is historically so inaccurate. And Houdini Doyle has a, at times, shaky grasp of history by virtue of having the two main characters meet 20 years before they ever did. But what they do with Doyle's own history, it's not like it's not documented. He is incredibly well biographed. Things like Stephen Mangan plays him as English. There is audio recordings of Doyle available. You can go to YouTube and see an interview with him, and he sounds like Sean Connery. Yeah. He's even got a little bit of the lateral lisp. And it's a Daddy Issue episode, which gets on my go anyway. Oh, Tim Burton, how are you? (laughs) I did a review for it for somewhere else. I have a bit of a rant about that. But the biggest problem with it is, is it's built around this premise of Doyle's childhood home being sold, and his childhood home is in London. And I was like, this is so little bearing on reality by this point that it's not even worth dealing with. And then it's about how he was je- hated his father because his father was jealous of him and he was committed when Doyle was a child and that ruined Doyle's childhood. Doyle's father was committed to uh, asylum in Montrose, not Bedlam, because he suffered from alcoholism and depression. But... Doyle himself signed the papers when he was 21, not when Doyle was five, which is what you see in the show. It's not even just taking liberties, it's just genuinely ignoring reality to tell a story that, because it's people who write for things like House and CSI and American Procedurals, they only know how to write a certain way, and they've grafted that onto the character of Doyle to make him, let's make Doyle Sherlock Holmes, but we'll make him English. There's no other way to explain it. An episode the week before as well, which I've got real problems with, 
which is actually the best episode of the series as well, which is boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually really good, apart from one thing, which is they make Arthur Conan Doyle a massive racist. And given that Doyle was a human rights campaigner who highlighted the racial abuse in the Congo and actually changed global perception of it and got Belgium to change their entire policy to the Congo, which has happened contemporaneously with when the show is set in real life, it's taking not just a liberty, it's genuinely insulting the man's family. And I kind of came away from it thinking... If you want to make a character the blustering comedy racist, let's do it with the Englishman. One, he's non-English, he's Scottish. And two, he was an anti-racism campaigner before there was such a thing. Whereas Houdini was notoriously racist in real life. You could play that story. It does make virtual murder look like the Avengers. It's kind of a point I was leading to, which was, so we had the big fantasy problem in the 90s, but now... Everything is a genre show, really. Everything is done in story arcs and character arcs, and you've just got to keep watching. And you're meant to sit and watch them like one after the other. Box set shows. Everything's being done like that. And can we have another fantasy crisis, please? <laughs> Houdini and Doyle strike the death blow that virtual <laughs> murder can be argued to have struck in 1992. The thing with the fantasy crisis of the 90s, because you had all these American shows coming over that looked their money, no one wanted to make shows that looked cheap. So they just wouldn't make shows unless they could sell them as something else. It wasn't genre drama. It was a drama that occasionally might sneak in some sci-fi references into. Great example being The Last Train, Matthew Graham's post-apocalyptic thing about what happens to Britain if the world was devastated by an asteroid striking it, which is set in Sheffield as a sort of nod to threads. But it's a relationship drama that just happens to be set at the end of the world. It's not a post-apocalyptic story. You've Invasion Earth, which is... I don't even know why you describe Invasion Earth, to be honest. Bugs, which was not a genre drama. It was a, it was an action series. It was a, a deliberately pitched as a sort of professionals and Dempsey Makepeace, that kind of detective show, not as a sci-fi show, despite it being genre all the way. Geek Hell was actually kind of a good time for me. It was interesting watching things go so horribly wrong. <laughs> this is the big divide between me and Ian, because he likes 1996. I like 1997 because it all went wrong. <laughs> Britpop just got rotten and burst. <laughs> Sean Maguire. <laughs> yes, Sean Maguire with his dreaming, his little dreams and OK Computer. <laughs> <laughs> The elephant in the room, which we've kind of not mentioned, or very briefly mentioned, is the Doctor Who TV movie in 96. Because it's the point where the BBC kind of gives up for a long while and trying to do out-and-out sci-fi sci-fi and, like, big family sci-fi at that. Invasion Earth is very much post-Watershed. It was originally meant to be written by Grant Morrison and then gets given to Jed Mercurio, who at that point had just done Cardiac Arrest. But it was BBC Scotland. BBC Scotland had a kind of a weird relationship with cult stuff at that time because BBC Scotland at that time owned the rights to The Invisibles and were trying to make that as a TV show and just couldn't do it. And as part of that, they were looking at Grant doing Invasion Earth and then it ended up with Jet. But they pitched that as a very much a sort of post-Watershed, a gung-ho action series that happened to have aliens and stuff in it as well. But do- kind of Doctor Who is the point where it kind of falls apart. And Neverwhere as well that year. Neverwhere is a very odd example of... It falling apart for the BBC entirely. And they don't really do it again, that kind of 
family genre stuff until Gormenghast four years later. I do remember them making a big deal about that. It was all over the front of the Radio Times and what have you, didn't they? Because they treated it as a costume drama. And they threw everything at it like a costume drama, but it was a fantasy costume drama. And it bombed massively. But it was the, them trying to sort of slowly crawl their way back into that space that they'd left for a long time. Okay, so what is... Because I actually mentioned to tell that Virtual Murder has a rating on IMDb of 6.9 out of 10, which I was quite taken aback by. There are by. people who like it. Um, when we were recording Pathfinders, we mentioned to Jeremy Phillips what we were doing, and he said, I love Virtual Murder. He just wasn't available for this recording. Andrew Pixley, the incredibly well-respected television historian, says there is a story to be told, a tragic story to be told about virtual murder not working out, and he thinks that it was what it wanted to be and was just badly scheduled. We're not reflective of everybody's opinion about this show. The possible comparison, as mentioned earlier, was Neverwhere, where you have a show that was designed to do one thing and then circumstance led it to being something entirely different that didn't land with its audience. And I do wonder, if Pixie thinks there's a story behind it, I do wonder occasionally if that is what happened, that it was meant to be field removed or it was meant to be shot on film or it was meant to look slightly differently and at some point in the production something's happened. Because there's clearly been decisions taken to swap episode order and to, to do certain things in terms of the production anyway. So it's even just doing it at Pebble Mill that obviously had a knock-on on what we saw. There's, I think there's other problems, fundamental problems behind it, but it, it may be, it's one of those things where, without knowing the history of the production, you don't know what led to the point we got to. The nearest comparison I could think of is, I don't know if you remember a show a few years ago, a BBC Three piloted called Foo Action, which was being made in Scotland for BBC Three. It was a drama around the same time as they did Being Human. And it starred Jamie Winston and Carl Weathers. It was being shot in Glasgow. The day before production was about to start, they pulled the plug on it. A cast and crew were in Glasgow ready to start filming, and it cost the BBC a fortune to do that. But there's some chain at some point where they decided they weren't happy with the production and cut their losses. Whether something happened with Virtual Murder that was the other way around, where they got it and was like, we're stuck with this, I don't think we'll ever know without being able to go through the paperwork. But it does feel almost like something happened in the process of making a show that you end up with a show that could have been something genuinely different and quirky and set a tone and it just doesn't land because something's gone wrong somewhere. I think you're right. I think that there are shows like this where the backstory is probably more interesting than what ended up on the screen. And unfortunately, it's the shows which are successful are the ones that have books written about them. Perhaps there is a a whole book to be written with a chapter for each show about shows that for whatever reason didn't take off, didn't work, or whatever it may be. But and maybe we'll come back to this topic at some point. Well, I get nostalgic for the days when some of the big outlets for fantasy stuff were desperately scrabbling around for something to talk about and Dreamwatch is saying, there's a repeat showing of Not With A Whimper on UK Gold because there's something somewhere with a fantasy element. <laughs> but I'm a bad, bad person. <laughs> That just reminded me of subscribing to Lauren Hardy magazine and it would say, we think there was a frame missing from the repeat of Busybodies on BBC Two last time. <laughs> Ian, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, you are going to be back on the podcast Airwaves if Airwaves have podcasts because From the Sublime is returning, is it not? It is, yes. 
No, uh, there'll be a brand new series of From the Sublime uh, starting in June. To which I believe Gary's going to be contributing as well. And hopefully too, if you would like to. If I can think of anything. I... Also, at the end of the month, we're going to be finally finishing the sitcom club's look at class in sitcom. We'll finally be tackling the ruling classes. We still haven't worked out all the shows that we have lined up for that. And if you like the new theme tune, that is by John Lane of A Journey of Giraffes. And if you'd like to buy a copy, it's on an EP called Making Things. You can get that by going to ajourneyofgiraffes.bandcamp.com. Yeah, well, there you have it. But in the meantime, if you've got anything for us at all, you can tweet us. We're on Twitter at Jaffas4Proust. You can find us on Facebook as well. Ian, where are you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me at From the Sublime, and you can find the podcast at FromTheSublime.com. And of course, you can find all the previous podcasts. You can find all the previous From the Sublimes, as well as all the previous Jaffa Cakes and Sitcom Clubs and everything else at Podnose.com. In the meantime, chaps, you've been chaps. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you very much indeed to yourselves for listening to Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Thank you.